Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, good to connect up with you once again. The election draws closer as you and I have this conversation. And I know that uh, we had talked about maybe talking about the Electoral College, but I think you have a fabulous topic that instead we're going to discuss. And I have to admit, this is something I had not heard about before. Well, the Electoral College is something that we certainly need to consider, and but I'm of the opinion right now that by one week from today, this will not be decided yet. We'll have the voting that takes place on Tuesday, and those votes are going to be counted Tuesday night. But then we will have the absentee ballots being counted in some states. The absentee ballots will not even have been received yet. In fact, in some states, if you postmark an absentee ballot on Election Day, they can receive it up to a certain number of days after that and still count it. Interestingly enough, there are some, I'm told, 13 states in which if you vote early, you can even change your vote. And there are various ways that can be done, like coming into the polls on Election Day and say, I want to change my vote, in which case you sign a certificate that invalidates the early vote that you cast. This is crazy, it seems to me, and it seems to me it's going to lead to all sorts of enforcement difficulties. And we've already had problems of ballot boxes being set afire, of bags of ballots being found by the side of the road, of ballots being sent out and being returned and things like that. This is going to be the most confusing thing you could imagine. Not only that, but I'm of the opinion that the whole idea of early voting is not a good idea. Now, granted, sometimes there are people who maybe for physical reasons are not able to come to the polls and they need to vote absentee. There are others that might have to be out of town on election day. There are people like myself who are going to be a poll watcher on election day and therefore have to vote early. But basically, I think voting early is a bad idea because part of the idea of a campaign is that in a campaign, we learn something about the candidates. That's the whole reason we have this campaign. It's an endurance test for the candidates to see how they stand up to things. And sometimes the last couple weeks of the campaign are the weeks in which we learn crucial things about the candidates that we should know. And if we cast our vote before Election Day, then there's a lot of things that could happen by Election Day that maybe we should have known and might have changed our vote. If I were on a jury, for example, and I were to simply stand up in the middle of the trial and say, I'm not going to be able to stay for the remainder of the trial, but here is my vote, I mean, that would be utterly crazy. But nevertheless, we are going to be having some discussion about the Electoral College. But as I say, a week from now, I'm quite sure that we'll still be hashing out some of these issues. So that'll be time enough to talk about the Electoral College. What I would like to talk about today, something that a lot of your readers may not be familiar with, and that was something that was practiced in the American colonies back in the 1600s and the 1700s. It was called an election sermon. 
the clergy of the American colony is probably more in New England than elsewhere, but the clergy throughout the American colonies would commonly preach on election day or on a Sunday shortly before election day to talk about the issues of the election. And part of the reason they would do this was that in America, the American clergy were highly respected. In any local community, the clergyman might well be the most educated person in the community. And so his advice would be sought on many issues, including on politics, because the Bible has a great deal to say about politics. In fact, we talk about the two kingdoms, church and state. Both of these are discussed in the scriptures. And so a pastor was expected to know a great deal about these things. Harry Stout was a professor of American religious history at Yale, and he made the observation that over the span of the colonial era, American ministers delivered about 8 million sermons, each lasting one to one and a half hours. Now, a lot of churches today, if you gave a one and a half hour sermon, your congregation would be gone before you finished. But that's what they expected. In fact, John Adams and Abigail Adams were once in London, and they talked about a church service they attended, the beautiful service, the music and everything. But then they said that we were very disappointed in the flimsy sermon. A sermon of merely 30 minutes in length would never be tolerated in New England. And went on to say, we'd say today that probably wouldn't be tolerated in New England today because it would be too long. But they expected to have their clergy expound a great deal. The average, again quoting from Stout, the average 70-year-old colonial churchgoer would have listened to some 7,000 sermons in his lifetime, totaling nearly 10,000 hours of concentrated listening. That is the number of classroom hours it would take to receive 10 separate undergraduate degrees in a modern university without ever repeating the same course. Events were perceived not from the mundane human vantage point, but from God's. Thus, colonial audiences learned to perceive themselves not as a ragtag segment of religious exiles and eccentrics, but as God's special people. In the 20th century, taxation and representation are political and constitutional issues having nothing to do with religion. But the 18th century years, attuned to lifetimes of preaching, the issues were inevitably religious as well. Colonists naturally turned to their ministers to learn God's will about these troubling matters. From the first colonial settlements, Americans, especially New England Americans, were accustomed to constraining all power and granting absolute authority to no mere human being. Not only did Parliament's claims represent tyranny, they also represented idolatry. For colonists to honor those claims would be tantamount to forsaking God and abdicating their national covenant pledge to have no other gods before him. Now, Charles Warren, in his book, The History of Harvard Law School and Early Legal Conditions in America, says it was to their clergymen that the colonists looked to guide their new governments, and in their clergymen they believed lay all that was necessary and proper for their lawful and righteous government. It followed, therefore, 
that the word of God played a greater part in the progress and practice of the law than the words of Brafton, Littleton, or Cook. Professor Christine Lee at the University of Delaware says, it is only by understanding the religious situation of the colonials that we can account for how many ordinary Americans were drawn into the resistance to Britain and then committed to the cause of rebellion and republicanism. And then from the Library of Congress itself, religion played a major role in the American Revolution by offering a moral sanction for opposition to the British and assurance to the average American that revolution was justified in the sight of God. As a recent scholar has observed, by turning colonial resistance into a righteous cause and by crying the message to all ranks and the parts of the colonies, ministers did the work of secular radicalism and did it better. We go into a lot of the sermons that pastors would preach on matters such as this, but to quote once again from Stout, well, first of all, I'm going to quote from historian Humphrey, Edward Humphrey, where he says, the pulpit was the most powerful single force in America for the creation and control of public opinion. And Stout talks about the election sermon, where around election time in churches, particularly in New England, but throughout the colonies, the pastor would preach what was called an election sermon. Sometimes that was in church and to his people. Sometimes they would have the election sermon for the community. And one pastor in the community would be selected to give the election sermon to take place in a public forum, and public officials would be expected to be there. And I'll talk just a little more about that election sermon in just a little bit. But the point that we're making here is that the clergy's election sermon was a tradition in the American colonies. Well, I wonder if it's a tradition that could ever, uh, could ever take hold in our time. We seem to have departed <laughs> from a lot of those uh, foundational uh, understandings that, that were present back then. We'll pick up just the other side of these messages. Again, you are listening to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. You can check out the archives at lovinglibertynet If you have missed any of the previous episodes, you'll find a wealth of information there. And we'll be right back. You've heard me talking about my pillow for three years, folks. It's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a my pillow. You can do it too. 60 day money back guarantee, 10 year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to mypillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two my pillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1 800 951 8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now. Balance of nature is fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. When I first switched over, because I stopped taking the other supplements I was taking and switched over all the way to Balance of Nature, I really noticed a huge difference. It was amazing. Like better sleep, better attention, better energy. It was just really, really great. 
Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. Hi, this is Jay Farner, CEO of Rocket Mortgage. Making the right financial decisions has never been more important. We can help guide you to those right decisions now when they matter most. Mortgage rates are near historic lows. So when you call 8338-ROCKET or visit us at rocketmortgage.com to start your refinance, you'll be well on your way to saving money every month. The rate today on our 30-year fixed rate mortgage is 3.375%, APR 3.59%. Right now could be a great time for you to take some positive financial steps forward with a cash-out refinance from Rocket Mortgage, which could give you the boost that you're looking for. In addition, we may be able to help you refinance with little or no out-of-pocket costs. At Rocket Mortgage, we're committed to every client, every time, no exceptions, no excuses, giving you the best mortgage experience. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com to learn more. Rates subject to change. Pay 1.875% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. And MLS number 3030. If you've fallen behind in your credit card payments during the shutdown, you're probably feeling some added pressures. And even a brief history of late payments can lead to a big drop in your credit score. But you don't have to solve these problems alone. Trinity Debt Management can help. We'll work with your creditors, put a stop to late fees and other penalties, and make a plan that helps you get caught up. We'll also consolidate your bills into one easy-to-manage monthly payment and negotiate much lower interest rates. Not only will you find immediate relief, you'll save thousands. And don't worry, it's not a loan. It's a smart way to get back on track. All you have to do is give Trinity a quick call and We'll take care of the rest. Right now, no one really knows what the future will bring. But one thing is for sure. If your debt has you down, we should talk. Here's the number. Call 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. And just like that, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. With the election coming up, we are talking about election sermons, which were a thing back in the 18th century. And, Colonel, I have to ask, how did these ever go out of fashion? Well, they never did go completely out of fashion. In fact, I preached an election sermon for my two country churches last Sunday. Last Sunday instead of this coming Sunday, because... This coming Sunday will be Reformation Sunday, and so my sermon this Sunday will be on the Reformation. But going back to what Stout said, the professor from Yale, as he described the election sermon, he says the setting of the election sermon, initially Boston's first church, and after 1658, the Boston townhouse reinforced the solemnity of the occasion. There, seated before the speaker in the principal building of the province, were the three orders of authority, the magistrates, who represented the oligarchy, the deputies, who represented the democracy, and the ministers, who represented the theocracy. Each would be addressed in turn so that all aspects of government and authority would be illuminated by the word of God. Unlike fasts and thanksgivings that were delivered irregularly to every town by a multitude of ministers, the election sermon was limited to a single day in the year and was spoken by only one minister. The communities would come together through their representatives 
and meet as one National Assembly. As the Speaker entered the pulpit, the mood was expectant. What followed marked the moment of superb oratory in a culture that valued the spoken word above all other art forms. The Speaker's goal was not to be innovative or entertaining, but to recall for his audience the vision that impelled New England's mission. And so the preacher who had preached the election sermon, whether it was for his own local church or for the entire community with churches gathered, he would preach on the scriptures. He would preach what the scriptures have to say about the nature of government, about the authority and limits on that authority, about our duties as citizens to government. And then he would go on to talk about some of the issues facing the election at this time, issues that would be addressed from the standpoint of what do the scriptures have to say about these things. And so, as I said, I mentioned, or I gave an election sermon in each of my two country churches last Sunday, and I'm going to go through a few of the things that I talked about in my election sermon. I've done this for years in my churches, but on this occasion, I based my election sermon on First Chronicles chapter 12. Now, to get the setting of what's going on in First Chronicles chapter 12, we see that David is at war with Saul. You know, Saul has been serving as Israel's king, but he has become corrupt and wicked and oppressive. And God, through Samuel, has anointed David to be the next king, but David has awaited the right timing before he takes office. David is now out in the wilderness as Saul and his armies are pursuing him. But the various tribes of Israel, are many of them are rallying to David's side in varying numbers. Some are coming to him in greater numbers than others are. And anyway, so in chapter 12 of First Chronicles, starting with, well, we read the whole chapter if we had time, but let's start with verse 23 as, I picture what's going on here is kind of like David at commander's call. And there at commander's call, he is calling each of the 12 tribes and asking them to report. And how many of their people they have reporting and loyal and ready for battle. And starting with verse 23 of verse 12. And these are the numbers of the bands that were armed ready to the war. And there came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul to him, according to the word of the Lord. The children of Judah that bore a shield and spear were 6,800, ready, armed for war. Of the children of Simeon, mighty men of valor for war, 7,100. Of the children of Levi, 4,600, and... Jehoiada was the leader of the Aaronites. That would be one group within the tribe of Levi. And with him were 3,700. And Zadok, a young man mighty of valor, and of his house, 20 and two captains. And of the children of Benjamin, the kindred of Saul, 3,000. For the hitherto, the greatest part of them had kept the war to the house of Saul. As an aside here, I might mention that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, so naturally most of those in the tribe of Benjamin are loyal to Saul. 
and of the tribe of Ephraim, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous throughout the homes of their fathers, and of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000, who were expressed by name to come and make David king. And now the passage I'd like us to note especially here, and of the children of Issachar, who were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. The heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were at their command. I can kind of picture as each of these tribe commanders is called upon to report. Each of them reports the number, and we get to the tribe of Issachar, and the commander of the tribe of Issachar salutes to David, and he says, all present and accounted for, sir. Why? Because they were men that had understanding of the times and knew what Israel should do. What do we know about the tribe of Issachar? Well, Issachar is the ninth son of Jacob. He's the fifth son of Jacob's wife, Levi. And so he's father of one of those 12 tribes. And this tribe had a close association with the tribe of Judah. As they went into battle, the tribe of Issachar, or the tribe of Judah, would often march together. And being men who had understanding of the times, they would know what Israel ought to do. As they're calling their forces together, we need to remember that at this time in Israel, we don't really have a standing army yet. Standing armies seem to come in the days of Solomon. At this time, we have reserve militias that are formed by each of the tribes. And the tribe of Issachar, well, they were people who were teachers. They would teach about the times to their people. Earlier, we find when God had raised Deborah to join with Barak in leading Israel to victory against the Canaanites, we find that the people of Israel were hesitant about what they should do. Some were willing to go to battle and some were not. If we read in Judges 5.15 that, well, some were hesitant, the tribe of Issachar, they were right there in the ranks. They knew exactly what to do. Judges 5.15, and the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, even Issachar, and also Barak. He was sent on foot into the valley. For the divisions of Reuben, there were great thoughts of heart. Now, I think the translators of the King James, when they say with Reuben, there were great thoughts of heart, I think they were being charitable. Other translations say that they had second thoughts. Other translations say there was indecision within Reuben. The contemporary English version simply says Reuben was no help at all. But Issachar was there 100%. What does it mean to say they had understanding of the times? We'll see that after our break. We will be back just the other side of these commercial messages. Again, we thank you for joining us on Constitution Classroom.
Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, it's fascinating to uh, to catch a glimpse of some of the the ties to uh, ancient Israel and and how uh, some of the things that, that they did influenced uh, the way that our system of government was shaped. And I'm going to ask you, please pick up where you left off as we went to the break. Well, let's continue then looking at what does it mean to say that the men of Issachar had understanding of the times. That is a phrase that appears nowhere else in Scripture, or at least nowhere else in the Old Testament. And Ellicott's commentary says that they simply had discernment of the times. It says they went over to David because they had political sagacity, that is, wisdom. And Kyle and Damish, whose Old Testament commentary is probably one of the most scholarly of all, says this word does not indicate scientific or astrological understanding, but political and ideological. Men of Issachar saw the situation between Saul and David, saw David's apostasy, or saw Saul's apostasy, recognized that David was God's anointed and the right man for Israel. And Matthew Henry's commentary puts it this way. He says, The men of Issachar were men of guilt and of great skill above any of their neighbors, men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. They understood the natural times, could discern the face of the sky or weather-wise, could advise their neighbors in the proper times for plowing, sowing, reaping, etc., or the ceremonial times, the times appointed for the solemn feast. Therefore, they are said to call the people to the mountain, Deuteronomy 33, for almanacs were not then so common as now, or rather the political times. They understood public affairs, the temper of the nation, and the tendency of the present events. It is the paraphrasis of statesmen that they know the times. Those of that tribe were greatly intent on public affairs, had good intelligence from abroad, and made good use of it. They knew what Israel ought to do. From their observation and experience, they learned both their own and others' duty and interest. In this critical juncture, they knew that Israel ought to make David king. It was not only expedient but necessary. The present posture of affairs called for it. They knew how to rule, and the rest knew how to obey. And Boyer also says, What I see is that out of all the tribes of Israel, the one which devoted itself to the study of scriptures, but which almost certainly also kept the financial books and commercial records, were the tribe of Issachar, and they were the tribe which alone knew understanding of the times. Now, I like this phrase especially, understanding springs out of that zone of the overlap between the knowledge of the scriptures and knowledge of the business affairs of the world. Let's use that phrase again, the overlap between knowledge of the scriptures and knowledge of the business affairs of the world. Scholars insulated from the marketplace become ivory tower hermits. People immersed in the marketplace without reference to the permanent truths of the scripture can never get a view of the big picture. Bring those two together. And you have an understanding of the times and knowledge of what to do. So the Levites, you might say, they were the ones that studied the Torah. They performed the religious rituals. But the men of Issachar were the ones who applied the scriptures to the affairs of the world. 
They understood the times. They knew what Israel should do. They therefore supported David over Saul, knowing that he was anointed of God and knowing that David was righteous and Saul was not. Not only that, but they taught these things to their people. And that's why they had their support of their people. That's why the commander of Issachar would say to David, all present and accounted for, sir. Point is, we need to be men and women of Issachar. We need to study the issues and the candidates, pray and vote intelligently. And if we do, what are the signs of the times that we see today? Well, a basic contempt for biblical values, a contempt for the sanctity of life with a pro-abortion and pro-euthanasia mentality, a contempt for marriage in the family with an emphasis on gay rights and gay marriage, transgenderism, and so on, and even going so far today that in some states they're even saying that those boys who identify as girls, at least today, can shower with the girls, can play in girls' athletics, and one state has even gone so far to say that men who identify as women, even if they're in prison because of sexual offenses, they'll be housed in a women's prison, contempt for property rights and contempt for the basic principles of property that we see in the Bible with socialism, welfareism, class warfare as it is being advanced today, race warfare, trying to create hostility between the genders, contempt for the work ethic, a contempt for biblical morality and putting in its place relativism and permissivism, a contempt for patriotism when our institutions are degraded, our ancestors are ridiculed and hated, and no nation can long survive if it teaches its children to hate their ancestors and be ashamed of their heritage, a contempt for our constitution, a contempt for the true authority of government and a worship of false authority. In fact, as we see all this anti-police mentality and this defund the police, well, one thing we fail to understand, if we're going to defund the police, who's going to keep law and order and how, how is that going to affect minority communities? They're more in need of police for law and order than anybody else. And the idea, some will say, well, let's bring in social workers to do that instead. Well, I'll tell you, if there's one thing more dangerous and one thing scarier than police officers acting like social workers. It is social workers acting like police officers. That gets really scary. And finally, a contempt for God and his law. The Ten Commandments today are ignored, are ridiculed. In fact, a friend of mine, a professor of education at the University of Northern Colorado, perhaps 15 years ago or thereabouts, did a study in one of the high schools, a suburb of Denver, and finding out how many of these kids in this high school knew the Ten Commandments. Well, they'd heard of the Ten Commandments. A few of them could name all of them. Some of them could name most of them. Most of them could name two or three. But there were some who couldn't even name a single commandment. But then he went back 10 years later to do a study in the same school, same class, although, of course, different students, he found that things had degenerated further. At this time, we find that there are some who not only couldn't name a single commandment, but had never even heard of them. Before, they would say, Ten Commandments, oh, yes, I've heard of them, but I can't name any. But this time, they're telling him, 
I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of these Ten Commandments. Well, this kind of contempt for the basic biblical values, a contempt for the sanctity of life, for marriage and the family, for property rights, for biblical morality, patriotism, contempt for the Constitution, for authority, contempt for God and his law, that is what we see when we look to the signs of the time today. And so now the question is, what do we do about it as men and women of Issachar? Very interesting. I, I don't think that I ever would have uh, would have made that connection, but I appreciate uh, you, you know, bringing some historical perspective to this. Let me ask you this, Colonel. Um, in in terms of uh, of seeking spiritual guidance in t- and and in installing earthly leaders, was was there ever a time in American history where you know this this was. Uh, not looked upon with the suspicion that it's looked upon today, meaning a, a politician today who, who proclaims religion or at least has their religion on their shirt sleeve is going to be viewed with a lot of suspicion. In fact, they're, they're probably going to be viewed as someone who wants to, you know, impose a theocracy. Well, people were always good at recognizing hypocrites. At the same time, there was a time when God's word was respected. In fact, it used to be said that in America, especially you go out to small-town America in the 1800s, you could get involved in all kinds of interesting debates about various issues, but if you could cite the Bible authoritatively and correctly, that would settle the debate. There might be all kinds of disputes as to what the Bible meant, but as far as the authority of Scripture, that was universally respected. But people in those days would respect a person who stood for the Bible and whose life was consistent with that profession. But like today, if they saw a hypocrite, they would have contempt for that hypocrite probably even more than we would today. Well, what we're going to see after the break then is how we today can become men and women of Issachar. We've seen the signs of the times. We've seen how in today's times we have this contempt for biblical values. Now, as we come back from our break, we're going to ask ourselves, what do we do about it as men and women of Issachar, as we have an election coming up in the next few days? We all have health goals, but let's face it, you are living in some fantasy world if you think you are suddenly about to start eating better. In fact, have you thought of this? How many different servings of fruit have you eaten today? How many servings of vegetables? And sorry dad, french fries and ketchup don't count. The experts recommend eating over 10 servings of fruits and vegetables each day. That's where Balance of Nature comes in. With three fruit and three veggie capsules, Balance of Nature gives you all your daily recommended servings and contains 31 different fruits and vegetables. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of fruits and veggies. Change your life now by calling 800-2468-751. That's 800-2468-751. 
or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code USA. Do you think some of the top investors in the world are buying gold? Recently, a handful of billionaires have been accumulating gold over other forms of investments. When the world's financial moguls like Sam Zell begin choosing metals, perhaps it's time you listen and follow suit with your own personal investments. Gold is formally recognized as a hedge against currency depreciation and inflation. Take David Einhorn as one example. Einhorn founded Greenlight Capital in 1996 and surged that fund from $900,000 to as high as $11 billion. Einhorn believes that the central bank's recent stimulus efforts will have an effect on pushing up the value of gold. He keeps 10% of his firm's value stored in gold bullion. If you're interested in knowing more about gold, platinum, and palladium, call Noble Gold for a no-pressure consultation. They have the most experienced representatives and an exclusive pipeline to metal sources. Visit them at noblegoldinvestments.com. That's noblegoldinvestments.com. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now, 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. Rates, policy forms, and availability vary by state. Once again, we welcome you back to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, it's it's been so interesting to hear you uh, put some historical perspective into the, the respect that was once shown uh, to uh, not just religion, but also to religious leaders in American society. And as, as we ended the last segment, I was thinking about uh, an observation. I can't remember who made this, but it really stood out to me. They said that uh, when psychology came along, that was part of the official distancing that, that American society made from that religious dynamic that previously had been accorded so much respect. For instance, if you were, if you were in court and you needed someone to uh, attest to your character, there was a time where the expert witness who would be called would be your clergy. And they were accepted as an expert witness to testify to this is what Colonel Eidsmo's character is, and, and the, the courts would have accepted that. Nowadays, it seems that the the soul has been um, displaced by the psyche, and so if someone is going to testify as to your state of mind or your state of heart, as it were, it's going to be some kind of psychiatrist or psychologist who's going to come in and testify, well, we ran these tests, and here's here's what we discovered. Just an interesting shift in, in how we approach, you know, knowing where a person is coming from versus uh, when, when religion was afforded more respect. Well, very interesting. You talked the phrase that you used there, that the soul has been replaced by the psyche. Interestingly enough, in the Greek, the word soul, the, the word that we translate soul is psuchikos. That's where we get our term psychology. It's from the Greek word that was used for soul. And you're right that psychology has to, 
a large extent, replaced religion. In fact, there was a psychologist by the name of Dr. Paul Vitz who wrote a book back in the 1980s. It was titled Psychology as Religion, where he makes many of the same points that you're making right now, that psychology has come to replace religion today, but not totally. And you could still bring in a pastor as a character witness today, and especially in some parts of the country, especially before certain judges or certain juries, that would be respected even today, but not probably to the extent that it would have been 100 years ago or two or 300 years ago. But let's get back in our closing minutes here as we look to these men of Issachar, the tribe that had understanding of the times and knew what Israel ought to do. How can we be men and women of Issachar in the society in which we live in these days that are coming up toward what some are saying could be the most important, the most crucial election in modern times? First of all, pray for God's wisdom. Not only pray for God's wisdom, but pray that his will will be done in the election coming up. Now it will be. God's will is going to be done. Sometimes it's his prevailing will. Sometimes it's his overruling will. Sometimes it's his permissive will. And it may be that God will intervene in this election. We do read, for example, in the book of Proverbs, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And we know that God speaks to kings, speaks to judges. The word is the same in the Hebrew there. But that God does speak through elections sometimes. But it may well be that God will decide that, no, it is not his will that President Trump be reelected. And to some of us who hold biblical values, we might look at that and wonder, well, how could that be? Look what President Trump has done. He has placed three pro-life justices on the Supreme Court. He has done more to remake the federal judiciary at all levels than any president in history, with the exception of George Washington. He has done so much to rebuild our defenses, to build our economy, so many things like this, how could it possibly be God's will that his opponent be elected? Well, we don't know the will of God. We don't know the mind of God. It may be that God needs us to hit rock bottom before we're ready to repent and we're ready to really turn to him. God has his plan, but what we need to do is look to God's wisdom, look to what God's Word has to say about the issues of the day, what God's Word has to say. I've said, first of all, pray, but as we pray, we go to the source where God reveals His will. We ask Him to reveal His wisdom. It wouldn't make much sense to ask God to reveal His wisdom and then not go to the book in which He reveals His wisdom. And so we turn to the Word of God, and God's Word has a lot to say about economics about crime and punishment, about education, about the sanctity of life, about our responsibility to the poor, about war and military service, foreign policy, things like this. And so look to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about these things. And then we study the issues 
and the candidates. We look to their character. We look to their qualifications. We look to their values. We look to their spirit. We look to their convictions. And frankly, as we look to the candidates today, we can certainly see that there are some failures on the part of both candidates, both candidates for president, and certainly on the part of one of the candidates for vice president. It would, in fact, that particular candidate was, it's known well that when she was in California, she had an affair with the mayor of San Francisco, and that was one of the things that advanced her politically. But so there are problems in the character of all of the candidates. But we need to remember, as John MacArthur has said, that we're not electing a pastor. We're electing a president. And while the character of the candidate is important, what is more important is what direction that candidate is going to be taking the nation. And when we think of the character of the candidate, it's not enough just to think of what that candidate may have done 20, 30 years ago, but how that character has been shown in recent years. That's certainly very important today. But look to the values that that candidate holds. Where that candidate stands, for example, on questions about the sanctity of human life, abortion, and issues like this. What kind of judges that candidate is going to appoint? What kind of legislation that candidate is going to favor? And so look to the candidates, their character, their stand on the issues, and then apply the Word of God to the issues and the candidates of today. That's where that overlap comes that we talked about earlier, that overlap between studying the Scriptures and applying the Scriptures to the events of our day. If we do that, what we are going to see is that one of the two major political parties is following a platform And most of its candidates are in touch with that platform, but following a platform that fully embraces the contempt for basic biblical values that we spoke about before the break. One of the two major political parties in its platform fully embraces this contempt for the sanctity of life, this contempt for marriage and the family, this contempt for property rights, this contempt for biblical morality this contempt for patriotism, this contempt for the Constitution, this contempt for lawful authority, this contempt for God and his law, and most of its candidates are fully in tune with that contempt. Now, I'm not going to say that the other party is entirely right, but the platform of the other party embraces those biblical values to some extent, and its candidates embrace them to some extent. Knowing all that, we vote intelligently. This is not about which candidate has the nicest personality. This is about which direction the candidates and his followers are going to take this country. Consider that as you decide how to vote. And then tell others. Now, each of you, each of you has your own sphere of influence. I have mine. Brian has his. Our sphere of influence kind of comes together a bit in this program, but each of you who's listening today has a circle of friends, a sphere of influence, people that wouldn't listen to me, that wouldn't listen to Brian, that will listen to you. 
and go out and tell others within your sphere of influence the things we've talked about today. And when you do that, you will truly be men and women of Issachar. I love it. I love it. And it's it, you're speaking, too, to the idea that uh, our personal character matters at least as much as, as those that we're going to be casting our votes for. Colonel, thanks again for, uh, for elaborating on, uh, on these issues and these principles. I look forward to our conversation next week here on Constitution Classroom.